0: Pair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter,
1: and I'm Joanna Sherino.
0: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is the VinePair podcast. Joanna, Zach, what's going on? Doing pretty good, man. Kids, kids with the grandparents right now, so uh, uh. it's so quiet in our house. It's amazing. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> I got to actually sleep till eight o'clock. Oh yeah. my god! I have to go get them tomorrow, so it's not like a big celebration. But and actually, here, funny. So my wife and I tonight. Uh, this is we're recording this on Thursday uh, the 26th, I, uh, we are going to, I'm going to my first baseball game since my son was born. Wow. Uh, I used to go to a lot of baseball games. Uh, it has been a, a, you know, between just the realities of trying to take a small child and then COVID, uh, not a priority s- kind of since then really. But, uh, like I'm going to sit in a baseball stadium and like drink a beer and <laughs> not like, it's going to be cool. I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't been to a sporting event since COVID started. Wow. I, I don't know. I, I'm, We've talked about drinking at, at, at sporting events before, but like I am I'm unduly excited for it, let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean I'm gonna make a statement I don't think it's gonna surprise you. Baseball, not that into it.
2: this has come up before on the podcast i agree i find it super boring (laughs) well that's what the the stadium i do like the stadium the stadium and the drinking in the stands and stuff i'm into yeah Yeah, i like the experience especially i mean the food and drink selections at most stadiums around the country's gotten better and better and better so Mm -hmm. um yeah that's it's always it's always fun and like to drink like a, a few beers and hang out you'll have a great time that's awesome
0: yeah looking forward to it
2: uh, what about you, Joanna? What's been going on?
1: Hmm, let's see. Um, well, recently I went to dinner with a friend in Jersey City, which I don't really venture over there often. Um, we went to a Brazilian spot. And that uh, yeah, was good. And I had a quote-unquote Brazilian margarita there. and <laughs> I just thought it was interesting because they made it with cachaça. Sure. Which uh-huh. was good. Um, but I, it made me think, obviously, cachaça is not um, – you know, extraordinary to see it at a Brazilian restaurant. But it, right. it made me think of um, BCB and how I feel like we saw some interesting cachaça products there.
2: We did. There was a lot of cachaça, I felt like, at BCB. Right. Also, isn't really like a
0: Brazilian margarita just uh, made with cachaça just of daiquiri? Like, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, some or a capperia, Brazilian Like Brazilian daiquiri. <laughs> yeah.
2: I don't know. I mean, I th- I'm sure that whoever, like, makes it, or on the restaurant. I figured that that was a lot more accessible of a yeah. name for the cocktail than trying to explain yeah. to you what a like daiquiri was, especially if you're not that into daiquiris. Yeah, yeah. Or if you expected, if you expected it to come out of a slushy machine. Yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> well, Jenny also like had some some nice wine last night. I, I checked had, out on Instagram. I did.
1: Yes, I did. I, I was lucky enough to have some um, wine sent over from Martha Stuman in um, Sebastopol, Ooh. and I had last night had a Vermentino that was excellent. Like really,
0: very really cool, gorgeous. yeah. Very cool, good. yeah. There's interesting Vermentino on the west coast. I had a bottle not that long ago from a winery called Troon, which is down in uh, like southern Oregon in the Applegate Valley. Also, super tasty and a great variety for those places like like Sebastopol or or the Applegate Valley or places where it's very sunny. Um, mm-hmm. because Vermentino is so good for a white grape, it's kind of like not going crazy ripe in, in all that sun and heat, like it, it retains its acidity and sort of tension better than a lot of other varieties, which is, I think why you're seeing it a little bit in places like that. Cause it it just is a, it's, it's why it's grown so much in in Italy and in the South of France. It's like you can grow it and not have it be, you know, just a fruit bomb mess. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally.
1: Yeah. it was so good. What about you, Adam?
0: So um,
2: I mean, I actually have, Mostly abstained from drinking this last week, except for Saturday night when I went out with uh, some a friend that was visiting. Actually, Josh's old roommate was in town, oh. so... Uh, she and Naomi and I and Josh went to dinner, which was really fun. But I've talked about the place we've been to we went to dinner at too many times before to talk about it again. maybe so. <laughs> uh, you add some new
0: restaurants to your rotation, dude. <laughs> no, because it was like on. I her mean, list. New York City, of course, New York <laughs> City famous for having very few restaurants.
2: I know. But you know, like it was like it was like she's she's from LA and it was like on mm-hmm. her list. And so we're like, okay, hey, gotcha. cool, we'll take you. Uh, it was a lot of fun though. And then uh I guess I'm I'm really like I'm I'm saving up for this weekend. So <laughs> Ooh, Joanna and slime, I are slime. going to the to the Wine and Culture Festival in Atlanta. Oh yeah, uh, and
0: so yeah, I was just like, just re- you know, getting getting ready, getting prepared. <laughs> uh, you were warned, I believe, that it is a uh, it is it is a, a bit of a bacchanal. Yes, I mean, I mean, in the inter-
2: yeah, when I was when I was talking to to Ira in the interview, like it's a uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm you know just trying to to to, to save up, uh, <laughs> but I'm very I'm very excited about it. Is I'm that very, how, is very that how
1: alcohol it. works, Adam?
2: Hey, you know what? It's not, but uh, I'm telling myself in my brain. Um, yeah. that that's how it works, and that you know, I'm just I, I banked
0: some some ability for drinks. <laughs> when was do you go to Atlanta regularly? I mean, I know you have fond memories, but do you get? I haven't
2: often? been to Atlanta. So we did a huge party in Atlanta. I want to say like maybe like the summer of 2019, or the, maybe the fall of 2019 know right when did COVID start I don't even know when COVID. Started. 2020. <laughs> March 2020 yeah so yeah so we did a party in Atlanta the fall of 2019 okay and that was the last time I was in Atlanta but Atlanta okay. has changed so much and just continued to sort of like explode as this incredible like food and drinking city I mean you could see it happening when I lived there Um but it's just been you know at this furious pace, and lots of really well-known bartenders and somms from New York have actually moved down there. Oh, cool! Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot of opportunity, and it's a way more affordable place to live. Um, and I'm curious in COVID if more people move down there or not. I actually haven't looked, um, but you know the city's just really exploding as you know the largest in the South. So I'm excited. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It'll be fun to show some colleagues from Vine Bear too, Atlanta.
0: Yeah. Have you been down there before, Joanna?
1: Um, only the air- Only on a like a layover. So um, <laughs> no.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also have not been besides the airport. So right. I, I, maybe next year. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Get ready, Joanna. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> um, I hope you.
2: I hope you bring some coffee and stuff because uh, you're going to yeah. need it. Anyways, uh, so this this week's topic I'm excited for, which is uh, you are talking about the premiumization and alcohol this this trend that we've been seeing and that accelerated through COVID, which is you know, consumers trading up, buying you know nicer bottles, nicer wines. It's a trend that had been predicted for a while, uh, but really finally has come into its own. You know the fact you know the these these middle tiers, fifteen to twenty five dollars bottles of wine, things like that are, are growing really really fast. Um, you're seeing you know, cognac explode, uh, you know, high end bourbons, things like that. So people are really spending more for better drinks, um, and the conversation really we want to have today is sort of why is that or what do you think is fueling that? And one of the ways I wanted to look at it is through the lens of sort of premiumization across the country. So um, it's something that I think alcohol doesn't do enough of, which is sort of look at what's happening in the rest of the world and what could be influencing premiumization in our own sector. Um, because premiumization in terms of just consumer habits has been happening for the last, you know, five mm-hmm. to 10 years, right? We've seen, a lot of startups especially who are creating premium versions of products we we use on a daily basis especially amongst the millennial demographic mm-hmm. uh, but we don't but i think premiumization can be confusing to people because when we say premiumization we mean trading up for better but not necessarily trading up for luxury products
0: mm-hmm.
2: right so we're when we say premiumization we mean going from you know a, I mean, I, I can't use this example because Zach will make fun of me. So there's going to be a piece of luggage, handbags, like yeah. Oh, okay. deodorant? So, so we say, you know, it's yeah, it's going from maybe like the 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 deodorant, <laughs> right, on the shelf, like a Gillette, and going to like a native, right, that feels like more high end, more like bespoke, right. Mm-hmm. So it's that idea of a little bit nicer, but like you're not going up to go buy the Gucci deodorant. Does Gucci make that rent? Don't even know. But uh, well, you see what I'm saying, right? It's it's the same idea of like with luggage, for example, uh-huh. right? You trade up from, I don't know, the bag you bought at TJ Maxx to like an Away suitcase or one of the other luggage startups, but you're not trading up to Toomey or to, you know, further than that, you know, uh-huh. a, a
0: Louis Vuitton or... Brent I'm or so impressed like at your command of the various brands at different <laughs> levels Of these various industries, Adam, you are just—you come on, man! I was—I have an MBA. It's your job. No, (laughs) I—I—I meant that—that was—that was was a completely sincere compliment. Like I just (laughs) in in prepping for this for this episode, I was like, I don't know what half these brands are, but that's cool. Uh, But so I think what's interesting
2: here is that it gets confusing when we talk about premiumization because I think in the alcohol industry, we assume premiumization must mean that everyone. Is like going out and buying Krug, right? Or like, mm-hmm. you know, on a lot. Like those those markets have stayed pretty constant, right? Like mm-hmm. there's there's more people coming in the category, but what's growing is this middle tier. And what's interesting about this middle tier that I want to have a conversation about is what is it? How do we define it? And I wanted to look at it through the lens of this, this term that was coined in 2017 by Venkatesh Rao. He's a you know a Consultant, management consultant, and he basically he calls it premium mediocre. And that's not mm. a negative. And I think it's really important to understand that what we're not saying is it's a it, it, we're not looking at it as a negative. It's this idea that you take a product and you make it feel craft, you make it feel special, you give it a story, and you're able to to charge a higher price point for it. Mm. So examples of this would be in our current culture. On the alcohol side, a brand like House, yeah, right. So for people who are aware of that, right, it's a it's a big sort of social product, right? That's a that's a premium premiumization brand. But if you actually look at its price point, it's forty dollars, yeah, right. So it's not it's not a luxury brand, but it's an accessible luxury product in fashion. You look at brands like Everlane or Kuyana or you know things like that. They're that sort of these these luxury premium luxury products that are not actual luxury luxury, right? That we're not talking again, you know, Bottega Veneta or things like that. We're talking, you know, accessible, we can buy them, but they still feel quality, you know, in cookware, which Joanna has a lot of experience with brands like Great Jones or Mise Knives or things like that are all this premium mediocre. And, where do we look at that through the world of alcohol and, and sort of how has that influenced alcohol in general? And have you guys seen this, this trend in the same way that I have?
1: Yeah. I I mean, I, I think definitely in food, I mean, when we were, when we first started talking about this idea, I was thinking like, you know, how did this start and where did it come from? And I was thinking about like the organic food movement and, you know, consumers really latching onto this idea in the early 2000s. And I remember my mom started to buy organic milk and produce back then. And that, that's kind of given rise to me as a consumer or a younger generation of consumers, really caring about the quality and source of what they're eating and now drinking, but also these other facets of life. And, and I think that this premium mediocre idea is really interesting because like you said, Adam, it's not so, so expensive. It's just expensive enough that a certain generation of consumers can, can participate and actually afford mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. And a lot of those brands <laughs> I own. Me um, too. Myself. <laughs> so, so I, I, yeah, I definitely, I definitely believe in this and, and see it as a trend kind of across every facet of life.
0: I wonder, you know, one thing that occurs to me in this is the this notion of products which manage to both convey a sense of of craft or or, you know, uh, some kind of something other than being, you know, kind of mass produced mm-hmm. while still being relatively affordable and available. And I think that in beverage alcohol there are there are a lot of great examples of this. I mean, you mentioned House Adam. I think you know, you think about um, a lot of what we've seen with like wine brands that are positioning themselves as, as somewhere in that they're not, you know, they're they're not, they're no longer positioning themselves in the kind of under $10 category Mm -hmm. that I think maybe our demographic and, and even maybe slightly older kind of first you know, that was kind of the first category. Understandably, when people are younger, they generally have less buying power and that's where people start out. I mean, I, I feel mm-hmm. like you're seeing people put, you know, brands and, and, and producers push into this category. But I also think it's it's almost more interesting to me to think about, you know, where you see some of these almost aggregations of these brands. And I think it's, it, you know, one thing we've talked about before, but, but haven't looked at through this specific lens is how like subscription wine clubs and things yeah. like that play into this. 100%. Because I think that's a lot of what they're selling, right? Like, I mean, whether it's their own, you know, private label stuff in some cases, or whether it's the idea of a wines that are, you know, from a price point that is not super expensive, but is also like very, feels more, feel, you know, has, has, a, high, has a higher price point. You're paying $15, $20, $25 a bottle, but the, their whole selling point is that they are not huge production wines. And that... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating to me because because for so long we've identified aspirational consumerism as being, in many cases, about having the thing that everyone has to have, right? The one product that you know, whatever it was, you know, the the one piece of um, you know of clothing or the one accessory or the one you know knife or the Le Creuset pot or whatever the thing is, right? And and are we maybe now in this era where what's more important to a demographic is not the specific brand, but is the, the, the sort of ca- being in the category in the first place?
2: Yeah, I think it's being in the category and and being in the category with a product that feels really premium, but that – or feels th- – that has the appearance of luxury, but like actually based on the fact that you're still – you're a millennial and, and may not still have the the buying power you would like to have is not at the price of a luxury good, right? Mm-hmm. So it's – I mean, I think – natural wine can be looked at as a, as a premium mediocre sector, right? It's, (laughs) these are, these are premium, you know, this is idea of premium product in terms of the way that it's sold. You know, Joanna mentioned the organic movement, but the price points are higher than what we're used to seeing, but they're not super high. And also no one's buying them to collect, right? No one's laying down these wines for the longest time to hold and make a return on. So, but they say something about you that you can't, that you know about them and that you drink them in the same way that I think like owning some of these, these products, like what's that one product? It's like the, the, the pan everyone was talking about for a while that had the spoon on it. And like, was like the spoon rest of the pan. I can't remember it now. Oh, It's all over Instagram, but like, it's this idea. See, I don't know every brand. One pan
1: or something (laughs) something like
2: that. Yeah. (laughs) But it's this idea that like, you know, no one, it's it, it's it's better than it's it's perceived as being better than like the pan you would buy at Target, but like no one's saying that it's you know all clad, yeah.
1: It's the always pan.
2: Yes, the always pan. Yeah, no one's <laughs> saying it's all clad. Like it's just not, you know, or no one's saying that th- some of these rip-offs of like Le Creuset or Le Creuset or Staub, yeah. right? These are, but they are look really nice and are nicer than going out and buying the store-bought brand at Target. I think that's also when we had this pre-conversation. I think, Joanna, you said this, which was interesting, like the idea that – or maybe it was you, Zach. Like it's also this idea of like these these wines, these these liquors, they're not found in like the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Like, you get them either direct to consumer or you get them in specialty stores in the same way that yeah. a lot of these these other brands exist as well.
1: I also want to mention that I'm just thinking about this more and I'm thinking about furniture as well, because we're seeing this with furniture quite a bit. And it just occurred to me that this feels also like it's like graduating from from like an Ikea or something Mm -hmm. to like the next direct to consumer before you potentially graduate to something in the luxury realm. Um, But I think it's also interesting because there is this suggestion of quality and higher quality that we're getting with this tier.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And as we move away from, and I was just reading about this as well, like as we move away from excess that we're spending more, but we're drinking less, right? And I think that applies here as well. Like you're willing to spend more on a wine subscription or a natural wine or something like that because you're not going to, you know, crush a whole case necessarily. You're going to keep it for a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. maybe not long-term, but you're going to spend more on it.
2: Yeah, totally, and it says something about you that you're able to do that, and it sort of it makes you feel like you have arrived at a certain place. And I think we've come to because of this premium mediocre sort of category, we've come to sort of accept that spending a little bit more means higher quality, mm-hmm. um, or or that more thought has gone into it. Maybe not even higher quality, right? Like, I mean, I read this interesting article recently that you know when Away started. Um, and I think maybe still now, but I don't want to say still now. But was, especially when it still when it first started, those suitcases were made at the same factory that was making all the other hard covers that we already know that were that you could ultimately find in TJ Maxx, right? But it was the way that it was marketed, the branding and the design that made it feel like to a consumer it was better and gave that sort of reputation of being higher quality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we want to feel is we want to feel like if we're willing to spend more to give ourselves a feeling that we're getting something of higher quality, and that definitely exists in alcohol. And I think that's why there is this movement to spend more. Because you want to feel like you're, you're getting more than what we've come to think of as being not good, right? Mass-produced, highly marketed at us, you know, mega purple, th- things like that, right? We, we want to feel like we're getting something a bit more artisanal, and that's where this tier exists. And this tier actually started, at least, you know, according to um, Venkatesh, where he first saw it actually was in food. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and in food in this fast, casual world of sweet green, and Chipotle okay. and things like that's actually he he credits that with being the start of this movement. And then it really rammed very quickly into, you know, furniture and design, kitchenware, et cetera. And now I think we're seeing it come into alcohol.
0: And I wonder too, one of the things that occurred to me in, in preparing for this was like thinking about how brands like this help reset consumer expectation for price points. And I was thinking about this in, in reference to one of the most successful brands on the market today in beverage alcohol. And I don't know that we would necessarily throw it into the like uh premium premium mediocre category, but like, think about what white claw did, right? White claw set. I mean, when, I, when, when prior to white claw, I think the still the default for like your early twenties thing I'm drinking to get drunk was a dollar beer or less, right? Like, like that was that, that dollar a, a can price point was for a lot of brands kind of sacrosanct, right? Like that's where they wanted to be because they recognized that, you know, $11.99 for a 12 pack or whatever was going to be a more compelling price proposition than more than that in, 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 you know, your sort of retail setting. That's the, you know, kind of low, low cost retail setting. And now, I mean, I don't know. what It's like sixteen bucks for a twelve pack of of uh, White Claw. Granted, they're sixteen ounce cans, so that's a little bit of a difference. But like, if you look at that, that setting, uh, you know, raising the kind of floor for pricing in that space, and then you know, the the more artisanally minded seltzers aiming well above that, like it is definitely, I think, uh, a, a case where you are seeing this, whether it's with a burrito and chipotle, or 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 as I said, seltzer or anything else. You know it it resets it resets what people's baseline is for mm-hmm. the price entry price for the category and makes kind of everything more palatable above that because again, with just like with wine, right? If you're spending if you're spending ten to twelve dollars a bottle of wine, a seventeen dollar bottle of wine doesn't seem like that big of an extravagance. If you're spending six dollars a bottle of wine, it probably does. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about it that way. But
2: it makes it a lot of. But I mean, it's very obvious, right? Like if, if we're used to paying a little bit more for colored pans, yeah, right. Then we're probably also going to be willing to pay more for like a bottle, a nicer bottle of wine, or you know something like that, mm-hmm. for sure.
1: I also wanted to mention like the the ethical part of this too, because I feel like a lot of these brands kind of market themselves as the more ethical decision or product to buy. And I feel like that really <clears throat> plays into this as well as consumers that you feel like you're making, I mean, in, in all of these categories, but also in an in, in alcohol that you're making the better decision, like for the world, if you're, if you're buying them.
2: Yeah. It's very true. That you think you like you think you're doing something that is making a difference through your purchase power, which is Mm -hmm. very, you know, very new. (laughs) It's it's (laughs) you know, especially when it comes to luxury products, right? Like for I think for uh, the longest time, you know, no one no one tried to pretend that like they were saving the world
0: by buying Dior. (laughs) <laughs> right? Well, I wonder, here I wonder if, if maybe we have to look at like fair trade coffee as being hugely influential, right? Because that was a big yeah. deal or shade grown or how, or, or whatever those designations, like coffee's another category where if we were more inclined to that, we could talk a lot about second and third wave coffee and how that also had this huge effect on, you know, premiumization and all that. Mm-hmm. But like, but again, yes, all these things combined together. And I think we're certainly, you know, to come back to natural wine, which you mentioned, Adam, There, there's a, there's a product where you're seeing a lot of these Sort of broader uh, consumer trends collide, and I think why it's been both successful and and also maybe controversial because you know trends always co- create controversy. I, but I think you're right, both of you, that, that there is there is this incredible, um, you know, I mean, God, this is getting. We had our sociological conversation uh, on was it the last episode? Um, so so we're gonna get to Zach's, <laughs> really you know, awesome. <laughs> my crazy my crazy theory, which is that you know people have been uh, you know, people, especially in the US, but I think maybe in the in a lot of the the world have become accustomed to the idea that perhaps our most impactful political tool is our wallet and not our ballot. And I don't want to get into whether that's true or not. I mean, that, I think it's hard to say. But I think that there's definitely something to the notion that many people feel compelled to express their political, sociological, whatever beliefs via their consumption. And I don't think that's a bad thing, actually. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's good to be conscious about how you mm-hmm. are, how and what you are spending your money on. I do think that you leave yourself a little open to things like greenwashing um, mm-hmm. because it's not that hard to for someone to, or a company or a brand to claim they're doing one thing and maybe not actually be doing it right. or not be doing it to the extent that they seem to imply. But probably better that than to just be like, oh, I don't care. You know, Who cares who gets the mm-hmm. money I spend as long as I get the product I want? Totally. I completely, I completely agree. I think all of this is fueling
2: this movement um, and making us feel like it's, you know, it's worth it to pay a little bit more. They, he, um, has like a, a joke in his initial article that he wrote, basically saying like the easiest way to think about it is like premiumization is the avocado to- is avocado toast. Yeah, uh, like yes. that's what it is or it's like truffle oil on everything. Right? So it's this idea that like we want it a little bit fancier, right? Like it's we'll, not truffles. you know no, it's truffle oil. Mm-hmm. Right? And and he's very clear about that, right? So it's it's like we don't want the the regular mac and cheese for 8 dollars a side, but we'll we'll be more than willing to pay 14 dollars for the truffle oil mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of that's the idea of premiumization, which I think is really really interesting. So it's this trade up from what we were spending. Maybe it was twelve to fifteen dollars a bottle of wine to twenty to twenty five. And but to get to that twenty twenty five, we need to be told and feel like that wine says something about us. You know, makes a statement about who we are, what we stand for, and we feel like there's there's a little bit higher quality inside the bottle. Again, we understand it's not a much larger you know amount of quality of the bottle as joanna just said right it's truffle oil not truffles mm-hmm. but yeah. it is enough that we feel like we have best we have bettered ourselves through this purchase mm-hmm. it's fascinating
0: yeah that's it's a it's a powerful it's a powerful motivator for people for sure totally well this was really interesting um i hope I, i'm curious uh
2: to listeners out there if you have any thoughts on premiumization shoot us a a, a email at podcast of Tell us some brands, or you know, we only named a few, or sort of movements inside wine, spirits, that are we also only really talked about wine that you think. I also think, and seltzer, know, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think RTDs are really right for this, right? This, yes, you know, uh, interview I just did, uh, with On the Rocks, I think is an example of premiumization, or Tip Top, one of you know, my and Joanna's favorites, I think is another example of this, this movement, right, towards just a little bit nicer. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, but I'm very curious to hear what other people think and where you see this going and where the opportunities are. So yeah, shoot us an email, podcast.vinepair.com. Let us know what you think. Joanna, I'll see you at the airport tomorrow. Be there at 6.30 <laughs> and be ready. And uh, Zach, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the VinePair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vinepair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vinepair Tasting director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making the show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.